Welcome to the Farcast here at Shadron State College. I'm Daniel Binkert here with Alex Helmbrecht and Dr. Jim Powell, who is our new Vice President for Academic Affairs. Uh, Jim, welcome to the Farcast. And um, what are your thoughts on being the VP for Academic Affairs now? Um, new to the job, but what do you hope to bring to the table? So one of the things, I've I been thinking about this, but one of the things that has been the driving force for all my um, higher ed career has been professional development. Actually, my dissertation was about professional development. Everything I've done has been about professional development for educators. Um, I always get excited. I tell my undergrads that I I was interested in them as undergrads, but my I really got interested about what happened in their life professionally after they left college. Because you think about it, you do college from 18 to 22, somewhere in that, you know. Yeah. But in your early 20s, you go out and you then you're in a job for, what, 40-some years? What if you never learned anything new? What if you never did anything new? So yeah. one of the things I'm real excited about is this opportunity to do some professional development to make sure that um, we're all, that all the faculty and staff are feel like they've got the tools necessary to grow and develop and, and become stronger at what we do, which we already do pretty well, so... But there's always room for improvement. Yes, right? there is always room for improvement. Yeah, that's the. I suppose that's probably one of the tenets that we'll talk about later when we talk about accreditation. But uh, yeah. continuous improvement, and I think people have a tendency to kind of forget that about themselves. They right. they uh, they just work and do their daily tasks and are fine with it. And sounds like it's kind of a passion of yours to maybe expand on that a little bit. Yes, and it's real easy to get in the the immediacy of the moment. I mean, right now, I know faculty are, are, you know, working hard to make sure they're ready for Monday morning. Students are going to show up Monday morning. Everybody's got to be excited about that. So I know that they're deep into what am I going to do for the classes next week. Um, and the staff are running around making sure that everything's ready for they're going to start showing up on Sunday again. So yeah. Um, and it's easy to get caught up into that immediacy and not think about, but what do I want it to look like next fall? What do I want it to look like in two years? Um, you see some real development when you work with the Academic Review Committee because that's when programs get to sit down every two years and say, are we where we want to be? Do we need to change stuff? Um, so, yeah, that's always the exciting part. Great. So, so I guess, how do you see your role as the vice president of Ac for academic affairs as it relates to students? Or do you, your contact with students may decrease, but but how do you see your role uh, advocating for them or working with them? So, I resisted administration for a number of years because I like teaching, you know, and and but when I got, I, I told someone. I got into administration as the same way that um, I went to higher ed. I love teaching middle school kids, and I really felt like I had a positive impact on middle school kids. And then I realized, but I could have a larger impact if I prepare teachers. Instead of just working with, you know, 150 kids a year, I'm going to work with a bunch of teach, future teachers, and they're going to work with 150 kids. So it, 
if I could do that, I had a, and I feel this job's the same way, that the goal for the VPAA is to make sure that every student who shows up to Shadron has the opportunity for the optimum academic uh, preparation that we can we can give them. And so my impact on students is going to be, be to make sure that, one, they have the opportunity for great classes, but also the opportunity for outside of class stuff. And, you know, I know we'll get into accreditation later, but this co-curricular idea of it's not just what you do in the 15 hours you're in class in a week. Um, it's also what you do outside of class. What kinds of experiential opportunities do you have to expand on what you're learning in the class? Um, so, you know, that, that, undergraduate graduate experience has to include both the classroom and outside of classroom high impact practices sure and i, <clears throat> I know those co-curricular experiences are really important to us in college relations a, a great example is csc live and, and what daniel oversees what there's probably three or four students who've been involved with that who've really kind of used that as a launch pad for yeah. their professional yeah, I think career. Yeah, several students that have gone on and used a lot of the aspects they've they've learned in CSC Live Productions and taken them to the job. Yeah, yeah, just take those opportunities and run yeah. with them. Yeah, and that's that's what's critical because um, there I was a first generation college kid, so there were a lot of stuff, a lot of things that I didn't even know were a possibility until you get yeah. to college and you're like, oh, wait, people pay you to do that? <laughs> yeah, that's nice. <laughs> that's, that's a really cool gig. I want to do that. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I, too, I came from a small high school and, um, you know, looking at it in the art world, there was very few opportunities in a small high school to really explore um, that area, get to college, and you can focus on yeah. something. You can take a lot more classes for it. And that was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's see here. So, um, now Jim, how long have you been the dean here at CSC? Uh, I started in July of 2015. 2015. So it's been, what, four and a half years? All so, right. Yeah. So you've had some time to uh, see how uh, your, your predecessor, Charles Snare, does the job. <laughs> um, job comes open as he's retiring. What made you want to uh, apply for the VPAA? Uh, I told the committee that I'm blaming Charles for it. Um, <laughs> well, he's leaving. It's yeah, safe. he's yeah. leaving. Yeah. It. But honestly, I have had such a rich and rewarding career in education. I mean, I started teaching middle school in 1975, so I've been at it for a while. Um, and it, every part of it has been really enjoyable. And, it, and it's been, I keep saying, the greatest gig in the world, but it has been. And when I got here, we were having a conversation right at the beginning, and Charles looked at me and said, yeah, but your job now is to make sure that the new faculty that we hired this year has that same 40-year opportunity that you have. It's not just about you. It's about what do you leave behind. Yeah. And he's been an excellent example of that. And so when that position opened up, I thought, yeah, I want to be sure that when I, and, you know, I'm 68, I've probably got about four years left. So I want the end of my career to be helping clear that path and, and make sure that we are positioned where the map wants us to be positioned. The new map is all about people, place, and purpose. Yeah. 
And we've got to be sure that we've got the right definitions and the right actions to make sure that moving forward, you know, that when I come back to visit this place in 30 years, it's still humming right along. So, Well, hopefully it is. I know one of the, I guess, probably one of the professional and maybe even personal tenants for Charles is, is collaboration. Yeah. And, and that was really evident during the uh, 2017 HLC visit and, and leading up to that. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, the new master academic plan with people, purpose, and place. But how important is collaboration to a campus like CSC? It's critical. I mean, it's just absolutely critical. And I... It, but I always, I'll go back to when I first started doing professional development schools at the beginning of my career at Ball State. And the hardest thing I had to talk to the faculty about was that we have always gone to K-12 schools and we've said, hey, we want to help you. Here's what we know you need and here's what we're going to do to help you. You have to change that conversation to say, hey, we're in this together. What do you need? And what do we need to do differently to help you get what you need? And when we started our partnership project here, there was that first moment when the schools looked and said, well, we don't want to do it that way. We want to do it this way. And the faculty were like, nah, I'm not so sure about that. And I said, remember, it's a partnership. And that, that's what people forget about collaboration is it is a partnership with equal power on both sides of that relationship. And if you don't have equal power, if the students and the faculty and staff don't have an equal buy-in and an equal space to talk and present ideas, it's not a collaboration then. It's just a really warm, fuzzy, you know, hierarchical organization. If it's collaboration, everybody can bring an idea to the table and be listened to. An ex not every idea gets accepted, but you do have to listen to all of them. So I think... And that means a lot of listening. For me, collaboration is getting people around the table who are willing to listen to each other. So, Yeah, and I, I just think it's such a good thing institutionally that it, it creates those relationships that then, you know, can be leveraged in several different ways and, and work out through, you know, a myriad of different possibilities. Yeah. And so it, nothing bad ever comes from collaboration. Yeah. No, and we're... I like the sweet spot we're in in the in terms of size. Um, I worked at Ball State for twelve years, and I swear there were people on campus who started the same time I did that I never met. I mean, there were faculty that you never you might see them at the opening day meeting. You had no idea what they were doing. You had no idea what was going on. Administration was the same way, but that's an institution with about thirty thousand students. We have the opportunity for everybody to know each other, and that's what I like. It's You sit in those committee meetings and you realize you're surrounded by peers who, who are outside their silo, mm -hmm. you know. And to me, that's – and you get staff who actually get to participate and bring their ideas to the table, which until I got here, it was kind of an anomaly also, so mm – -hmm. Yeah, well, I know it certainly assists us with our department in college relations where we yeah. we partner with everyone. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so um, it, to continue to make those inroads is, yeah. is so important. Yeah. It, it feels like there's this this whole framework with collaboration. And I think we've got uh, a nice a nice 
identifiable framework here at CSC with our master academic plan and a strategic enrollment management plan. Um, so for people who wouldn't necessarily be familiar with what those are, could you give us kind of the, the 30,000 foot view? <laughs> give it 30 seconds. <laughs> the, yeah. the, the, and the $30,000 question. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Wrap it all up in about two sentences. Um, MAP's got a, a nice storied history, and Charles, again, is responsible for that. When he, in 2014, well, it was actually, what, back in 2012, 2013, they looked at the strategic plan, and they said, you know, this suffers from the same problems we most do, and that is you've got 20-some initiatives, and nobody knows what's... And he really worked to say, let's pick five or six things that we really need to do well. Yeah. So that map for 2014 to 2018 had six items identified. People were able to look at the projects. And you can go out on the, um, pretty sure you, everybody's got access to it, on the SharePoint and look at the old map. Um, and it's got all the projects listed, what happened with them and everything. When it got time to renew the map, um, so we have a new one, 2019 to 2023. They looked at the six and they said, what was the, well, you were on that. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I wasn't in the committee, but I had a sense that they looked at the six previous objectives and said, what's the core of these? And you really got down to the rock bottom, which is people, purpose, and place. There is people, place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, the three P's. The three P's. <clears throat> I think our task now is to help define what do we mean by purpose? What do we mean by place? What do we mean by... And SIMP is the way that we're trying to reach out to that. So SIMP is a strategic enrollment management plan. It grew out of a visit. Alex was there with us when we all went off to a conference in Denver, Buffalo, mm -hmm. Noel Levitz, and... We had what fifteen people there. Oh, at least yeah. yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of CSC folks there yeah. for sure. And we all came back, and it was it was not just student services side, but it was there were other staff, there were faculty, um, and we all came back and said, you know what, we got to get serious about en enrollment. And the first thing we started looking at were numbers and retention and so forth. So the simp grew out of that was okay. And we started saying, what do we need to do to recruit kids? What do we need to get them successful in their first year? Yeah. And then keep them through the next three years and get them graduated. Um, so SIMP is what's going to drive how we define people, place, and purpose. Um, we had a year of planning. We had the year of doing. Last year was kind of the year of assessment. Now we're ready to start that next cycle and say, okay, what are we going to do with a strategic enrollment management that from this point on. Okay, good. And <clears throat> really involved, uh, both of those projects involved uh, basically everyone on oh, campus. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, we've all got a hand in it yeah, in some way. Yeah, yeah. and so that that's a, a really kind of a, a crown jewel of, yeah. of CSC's recent collaboration, at least. Yeah. Uh, you've mentioned accreditation a couple times, and I think Daniel and I have as well. Um what is it? Why is it important? <laughs> you know, why is it so hard to define what you do and to do it in a way that doesn't make it seem esoteric? Why, what is it? Okay. So accreditation is when you open yourself up to be evaluated by your peers. So we have 
Music is an accredited program. Business is an accredited program. Education, social work, um, counseling is going through the accreditation process. But in every one of those instances, you have a team of musicians that look at the music school. You have educators, and you just throw your whole program out there. They all have different, slightly different formats for reporting information and so forth. Right. But you're throwing yourself out there in front of your peers going, what do you think? HLC is the same way. Now, partly accreditation is driven by um, the feds are putting a lot of money into education, uh, higher ed, and they want to make sure that, you know, they're getting, that students are getting value for their dollar. Yeah. And that's part of the accreditation process also. Um, but the I have never been through an accreditation process that wasn't painful, <laughs> that didn't have you sitting there at one point late at night going, why are we doing this? Um, but at the end of it, I've never been through one where you didn't go, you know what? We learned some stuff. Mm-hmm. We're better for this. Um, and I think the last HLC visit was a classic example of that. We worked so hard to prepare for it. Um, but when they left campus, we were like, look at what we learned, you know? Yeah. Um, so I like accreditation. I like it a lot more if somebody else is doing it. And I'm, <laughs> I just get to watch from the sidelines. But unfortunately, that's not the case. You always have to get in there and roll up your sleeves on it. So Yeah. It, I mean, it definitely requires hard work. Yeah. It, it's not something that can just be thrown together yeah, in a yeah. couple of weeks. Well, when, they, when people start asking you questions that you have to go find data for, that, I mean, that's when you learn stuff. It's mm-hmm. like, ooh. Maybe we need to look at that a little better because, you know, it, whether it's the fact how many students are getting placed after they get out of college or it's how many people are making it through these um, transitional English and, and math courses and moving on successfully, no matter where that data point takes you, you learn something from it. And, and that's a, But it's finding the data that's always the part that has you scratching your head going, I know that somewhere. <laughs> we got to find it. Yeah. Yeah, something. Um, Jim, let's talk a little bit about your work history. You've touched on it uh, uh, in the opening of the show here, but what are some high points in your career leading up to CSC? And quite a storied career over the years, I would hope. <laughs> well, I'm sure there's a lot of stories about it. Um, <laughs> I um, I started teaching middle school English in Logansport, Indiana, in 1975. Um, I, I thought I would be a high school English teacher. I mean, that's what I prepared for, and I was just all gung-ho. Yeah. And I remember doing my student teaching in Logan Sport, which was close to where I grew up. And uh, they put me in a sixth-grade reading classroom. Now, you got to remember, in 1975, there weren't reading degrees. It was just, yeah. oh, you teach English? You could do reading. Mm-hmm. And I had this most brilliant classroom supervisor. I walked in the first day and she said, what do you teach? And I said, I teach English. And she goes, ooh, that's a problem. We all have children here. (laughs) And I thought, who is this crazy woman and why am I here? And then I thought about it and I thought, oh, yeah, we teach children. We teach children English, but first you teach children. And then the second moment when she said, now, they'll want to have their crayons. And I'm like, well, time out. Crayons? I'm not... But they did. Sixth graders are in that transition point. And I found out I really love middle school. That was the fun part. Um, 
And I did that for six years. Um, and then hit a point that was in the 80s where, and hardly anybody remembers those days, but um, inflation was running about 18%, and we were getting about 4% raise every year. And I told my wife, I said, we'll either go bankrupt teaching or I got to do it something else for a living. Yeah. And I went into not-for-profit management and worked for a professional association as a continuing ed director. And that's when I fell in love with professional development because I realized in Indiana when I got my degree, if you got a master's degree after five years, you got a life license. I have a life license from Indiana to teach English until they have to cart me out of the classroom. <laughs> But they never required professional development. It was like, okay, you're 22 years old, you got a degree, you're good for the next 40 years. But when I work for the CPAs, it's like, no, every five years you've got to go back to school for so much, you know. Yeah. And the lawyers were doing it, doctors were doing it, and I kept thinking, why not educators? Why don't we have something a little more formal than that? Um, and so I did not-for-profit for a while. Um, ran a national association for a while. And all the time I kept, I mean, I did conventions. We had great times. But I remember running into a couple of students at that point in my life, and they were talking about what we did in the classroom and how, and I kept thinking, you know, nobody's ever going to say that about a convention that I did. And I went back to teaching. I it was kind of one of those moments where, yeah, I'm going to take a third less salary now to go back <laughs> to teaching. But I ended up at the lab school at Indiana State, which was my introduction to being on university faculty. And the dean that year, uh, Hazlitt, who was a brilliant guy, and he looked at me my first year and he said, if you want to make any money in this biz, you've got to go get a doctorate. So after three years, I went off and I started a doc program. Part of it also was... I looked across at a bunch of the people who had doctorates, and I thought, well, how hard can that be? <laughs> Which you, you learn to regret those words later when you're sitting there trying to write a dissertation. It's like a lot harder than I thought. Yeah. I would um, but so I went to Arizona State. I'd gotten my master's at Ball State in um, linguistics which I fell in love with late in life or late in my, you know, my undergrad career and uh, teaching English as a foreign language. And then I went off to Arizona State and got a degree in um, curriculum and instruction, but started working in their professional development school that they were just starting. That was when the Holmes Group um, really started talking about uh, changing education. And they had a whole bunch of ideas, some of which kind of worked out, uh, some of them which people tried and they didn't you know, like master teachers. Um, the idea was that you would bring people in from school districts who were master teachers to teach at the college level, uh, bring their expertise in, do that for two years, and then go back to the classroom. What they found was they had come out of the K-12 system and they'd get into college system and they're like, wait, you don't teach six classes a day, you don't. Yeah. and they wouldn't go back. You know, they'd get a doctorate and stay. Um, so that didn't. That was one of those ideas that didn't work out. Um, I went back to Ball State, kind of on a fluke, but um, started my uh, higher ed experience there. Taught there twelve years. Um, it was good, and I liked Ball State, um, but. 
after 12 years, it was like, well, do we stay here? The kids had grown up. They were gone. I looked at my wife. We were both kind of like, eh, we could do this till we retire. We could go do something wild. And a job opening came up in Alaska, and I was like, well, always <laughs> dreamed about Alaska. Let's go yeah. try that. And I got up there, um, and it was it was wonderful. For the first time in my career, I got to use my English as a foreign language. Uh, we worked with two groups, the Anangach and the Chupik. Um, both of them were into language revitalization. Both of them were experiencing, because of boarding schools and a whole bunch of other influences, uh, the death of a language. Yeah. Um, so the Chupik is going to be successful. Um, the Nungak, the Eastern dialect, probably not. Um, you'd, you get to a point, and we'd go to these conferences, and it, some of the saddest stories, but you would get to a point where you don't have enough strong bilingual or native speakers left, and they're all 80-some years old. Mm -hmm. And I remember us talking to an Inupiat, which is still a really vibrant language with a lot of strong speakers and native speakers, a few native speakers. Um, but um, the old guy was talking to him and he said, you know, there's just certain parts of the language that are going to be lost because there's hunting language that you only use out on the ice. And the people that know that language are passing every day. And, and there's the language that the women use within, uh, you know, their, their discussion circles. And those older women are dying and you don't. So he said, there's going to be words that just never survive. And that's the problem with language revitalization is you can bring it back. But anyway, mm -hmm. that was a lot of fun. Enjoyed that for six years, a lot. And then it's spring here, early spring, late winter. That got hard. Um, three and a half, four hours of daylight a day. Oh, yeah. Is, <laughs> it got tough. hard. <clears throat> and we decided to come south that, to the lower 48 again. Um, went to Michigan, uh, Fair State, and that was uh, had a lot of fun. But it, when I got to Alaska, I'd resisted doing administration. But when I got to Alaska, they needed a chair. So I said, okay, I'll be the chair. And I actually found out I really liked it. So when I went to Michigan, I was the director for the School of Ed. And after three years, I thought, you know, I'll never get to be dean here because um, we were in a, the college there was mostly criminal justice with education, and the dean was always out of the criminal justice side. And I thought, well, I want to be a dean. I do want to try that. So I came out here, and it's been fun ever since, so. What's the what's the biggest difference between being an administrator and an educator? Yeah, I don't. That's a hard one because when you're an educator, you you've got your content in front of you, and you've got your students, and you're trying to figure out where's the best interface between what the students are bringing to class, what they need to take out of class, and, the, and making sure that the contact or the content is able to address them where they are but get them to where they need to be. As an administrator, um, it's like putting together a picture puzzle. You never know. You, you come in with a plan every day, 
and sometimes it survives till noon and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> but it's always like, oh, how do I move these parts around? How do I get this so that we get all the courses covered? How do I make sure that we, you know, find the adjuncts we need? So it's just it's a different two different beasts. Yeah. It's sure. it's kind of like saying what's the difference between farming and ranching? I mean, well, you're both working with crops and animals and land, but there's a significant difference between ranching and farming. So, what are some of the biggest changes you've experienced in uh, your career in education? Well, when I started, we didn't have computers. Um, <laughs> That's I a big one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I tell people, I can say, I remember the first time we taught with a computer, I was at the lab school at Indiana State, and it was an old Apple 2E, I think. It oh, was yeah. The, like, the green screen, yeah, and yeah. we played uh, Oregon Trail on it, you know? Oh, that was um, fun. <laughs> Classic game. Yeah, it was. <laughs> um, I think students tend to be students. Um, I think the students we have today have a, a number of different issues in front of them than um, when I was going to college. Um, you see a lot more pressure for making sure that I can pay off these loans that I may be taking, that I can actually um, – I mean, I went to college and it was like, okay, I'm going to college because that's what you do and not really thinking about, oh, will I get a job at the end of it. I think the students yeah. today – are very cognizant of, is this a good investment? Am I getting what I need mm -hmm. out of it? Um, I always go back to the, the, there was a great educational historian, Larry Cuban, and he said one time, he said, you know, if you pulled somebody up out of the grave that died in 1900, there's only three places you could take them that they would feel comfortable a church, a bar, and a school. Uh, because mm, yeah. other than the electric lights and some of the you know the other stuff that's going on, you look at a schoolroom today and it doesn't look radically different than a schoolroom of 120 years ago. Um, and I think some of our challenge is the students are coming in with a whole different expectation and, and mindset around how you learn. And for those of us who grew up back in the day when libraries had card catalogs and that was the only, you know, I'd, I'd tell people, I'd tell my students when I was going to school, if you told me something, the only way I could figure out is if that was true was to trot down to the library, hope they had the book, look it up and find out. I said, now they sit in the back of the class and Google it and go, <laughs> no, that's not right. You know? Yeah. So that's a significant difference. Um, anyway. Yeah, Google has definitely been a game changer. really have closed the feedback loop. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and when we switched from film photography to digital photography, the feedback loop just closed uh, immensely because you could see if you had yeah. gotten it. Yeah. And same way yeah, now with education, being able to, to double-check things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and knowledge is a much more shared experience now. It used to be the teacher was the repository and they handed it out. Now it's a co-constructed event, so – it just reinforces that lifelong learning yeah. aspect, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, speaking of shared experiences, how do you see CSC's role as it situates itself inside this western Nebraska region? I think that we've got a couple of things that we need to be um, cognizant of. And, and we're on the right track. We're developing a very strong relationship with western Nebraska Community College. 
starting to look at how do the two institutions together prepare people for the region. Um, one of the things that the state has to be aware of is it's really hard. And we, this Alaska was the same way. You didn't get people to get an education degree or a dentist degree and then go out to a remote village and expect them to make a career out there. It'd be good for a year or two, but then they're like, yeah, this is too different, and they would come in. Um, if you want people to work in western Nebraska, they have to love western Nebraska, and that's our residents. I think we lose a lot of young people because they look around and they're like, well, I'd love to stay here, but can I get a job here? Yeah. And that's part of our challenge is to make sure that we're preparing the people for the jobs that are here and helping people find niches to create jobs in the area. So um, we have to – one of the things that somebody pointed out is the growth in this area right now is people who are retiring and moving back home. And you get, you get a lot of that where people are like, I never wanted to leave, but I had to go get a job. But now that I've retired, I can come back. Our task is to make sure that they can get a job, that they can find a job. And we're not in the job creation business, but we're in the preparing students who will be creating jobs business. Yeah. So that's, I think, part of what that purpose is for us. Yeah. Great answer. Yeah. Uh, Jim, tell us, what are some of your interests outside of work? Well, I like <laughs> I do fishing and woodworking. Um, I like, we've always been an outdoors family, uh, and which one of the rare treats about Shadron was, um, when I applied for the job, I knew it was Nebraska and I called a friend who was teaching at the university of Lincoln. And I said, what do you know about Shadron? He goes, well, it's the crown jewel in the state college system. I'm like, he had to explain what a state college system was. <laughs> I was like, wait, it's not a university. And but um, I came out here, and I, I love the area. We were looking to get to the west, and um, I drove in from Rapid City, and I was like, oh, my gosh, this is gorgeous here. Yeah. But it was after I lived here or moved here, I caught more trout here than I ever did in Alaska, or I caught more salmon in Alaska, but um, or Michigan, which has some fabled trout waters. Um, I've seen more wildlife. We've got, I got out here and I was like, you've got elk and bighorn sheep and, you know, that, so for us, the ability to camp and hike and, and fish has been really, really good. And I like woodworking. I enjoy getting out in the shop and, and just kind of losing myself. What are some of the things you make? Well, right now, I've got an ongoing dollhouse project for my seven-year-old granddaughter that was supposed to be done nine months ago, but I keep, it's almost there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm down to hanging yeah. the doors on it now. So it's about done. Uh, but every time I start on it, it's like, oh, I could approve that. I could do that yeah. a little different. So, um, but I've got to turn loose of it now because I've got another granddaughter who's, I promised the granddaughters that when they graduated from first grade, I'd build them a dollhouse. I got to get this one done because the oldest one's about to finish second grade. So <laughs> uh, I got to get ready for the next one. Yeah, clock's ticking. That's yeah. right. <laughs> Is that the primary uh, type of woodworking project you like to do? Or oh, no. I, I mean, we renovate the house. Sure. So that's a lot of fun. I 
for a number of years, I did. Uh, I worked on a lathe, and I made fids of all things. I love making fids, and if you've ever been a knot tier, a fid is a tool that you use to untie knots. Oh, nice! And they've got a really cool shape to them, and you can do some really neat stuff with them. So, mm. I made fids. Yeah, I, I have. I've never heard that word. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I'll, some, show, I'll show you a fid some. Okay, okay. Yeah, I want to yeah. see this. We always learn something new. Yeah, absolutely. So, Jim, we've we've reached the 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 point of the interview where we're at the five quick hitting questions. Okay. So, first thing that comes to your head, just go ahead and say it. Now, Jim, what's a favorite book or a favorite author of yours? Oh, wow. Uh, I'm an English major. Why would you ask me that? <laughs> that that's why we asked you. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, though, it's I'd have to say uh, late in my reading, I fell in love with nonfiction. And I especially love a guy named John McPhee. I just, every book that man writes, I will go and buy it and read it. He is awesome. Um, so that's what I'll stand with. Okay. All right. What's one of your favorite movies? Uh, we're just coming out of the season, so it's either Miracle on 34th Street oh. or It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> there you go. I can't go through Christmas without seeing one of those. I think I've seen him now for 40 years in a row, but it's like, you yeah. know, you can almost cite the dialogue on it. So, yeah, I, <clears throat> those two are on my list. I've never seen either of them all the way through. Oh, really? Yeah, I need to. <sighs> yeah, I need to do that. Oh, Alex. <laughs> I know, I know. Jim, first concert you attended? First concert I attended? Ooh, I got to think about this. Was it Chicago or was it? I was at Indiana University, fall of 69, so it was either Chicago or it would have been, um, it had to be Chicago. That would have been it. All right. It's a great time for live music in the late 60s. Yeah. How many times have you been up to the top of Sea Hill? Actually, only once. Well, once is still a good number. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Up there once. (laughs) Right after... Uh, Carla got here, and we were just we were walking the the cross country path, and I was like, we ought to go up to the top of the hill just to yeah. say that we've done it. So yeah, yeah. I always think it's interesting. You get to the top of the sea, and then there's <laughs> it's got a summit. You have to keep going. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were backpacking at a scout camp, Philmont, which is in New Mexico, and you quickly learned that you'd look ahead and you'd be like, oh, there's we just got to get there, and then it's downhill, and you get there, and it's like, no, there's another one. You know? <laughs> yeah, that works, isn't it? It's the worst. Okay, Jim, last one. What is the word that comes to your mind when you think of Shattered State? Caring. So and it's a great place in that every conversation is kind of focused on what's good for students here. And because people care about students and they care about education. So it, it it really is a teacher's college. Now, I'm probably just offended all the liberal arts and business people, but, you know, it's what we do. We, mm-hmm. we are a teaching college. So Well, great. Well, thank you for taking the time with thank us you. today, and uh, best wishes to you in this new role at the college. Right. Thank, yeah, you. thank you. Thanks, Jim. All right.